Welcome to Universe University. Today, we are very pleased to bring you part two of our interview with renowned science journalist Andrew Chaikin. I will be asking him about his numerous personal interviews with the first men in history to visit the Earth's moon, the Apollo astronauts. on a, a, a book which you just mentioned later on called Voices from the Moon, which I would highly recommend uh, to a lot of people because it's uh, an easier read than a lot of the material out there. And it really does sort of capture the individual perspective, which was as unique as the individuals going to the moon. And ultimately, I, I wonder in all the years that you spent talking to, I believe you've spoken with all the astronauts with the exception of uh, Jack Swaggart who died uh, right. very shortly after uh, the Apollo 13 mission, is that correct? Yeah, Jack actually died in 1982, right before he would have taken office as a representative, as a, as a US representative from, this, from Colorado, his home state. So yeah, I started my project in 84 84, 85 timeframe. I did my first interviews with Apollo lunar astronauts in 85. And so Jack was already gone, but all the others, uh, yeah, I talked to it at pretty considerable length other than John Young. I only had two 60 minute interviews with, but they were, that was okay. I mean, the ones who didn't give me as much time still gave me great stuff. Neil Armstrong, I had one session with lasting a, a little over two hours. Great, great uh, experience. And then others like Dave Scott was many hours, Bill Anders, many hours. Um, so Al Bean, you know. My uh, question was, in all this time that you spent uh, speaking with them, did you eventually come to a point where you yourself felt like, at least in your own imagination, like you knew what it would be like to go on this journey, to be inside the command module or the lunar module and to walk on the surface of the moon. Did you, did you start to develop that feeling or do you feel that even today, after all the work you've done, that it's still kind of mysterious and elusive and it's, it's still a journey that perhaps uh, is intangible for those who haven't been on it? Um, it's a little of both. Um, I probably spent as much time, if not more than most people, including space fanatics, imagining that experience with all of the knowledge that I have. And I still am tweaking it and refining it today. Um, and one of the things, by the way, that helped me was in 1997, when Earth from the Earth to the Moon was in production, the miniseries based largely on my book that Tom Hanks did. And I went to the set where they did the moonwalk sequences in Tustin, California, and got to stand on uh, an acre of simulated moonscape with a real lunar module, the one lunar module that didn't fly, LEM 13, and a uh, 
a, 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 a artificial sun, which was a convex mirror that they were aiming 100,000 watts of, of xenon floodlights at. And in this environment, I felt as if I had stepped into a Hasselblad frame, an Apollo Hasselblad image. And that was, um, visually, that was, a, that was a, a great little nugget for me to draw on. And um, two years later, um, I flew on the, uh, the NASA Zero-G airplane. I, I had done that before a number of times, but this was the only time I got to fly where they did simulated lunar gravity. And so I got to experience 16G and I was surprised because I had always thought that walking on the moon would feel like you were on a trampoline. Well, it turns out Mars gravity, which they also did, <clears throat> that does feel like you're on a trampoline. Lunar gravity feels like you take weightlessness and you have a dimmer switch and you dial in just about enough gravity to keep you on the floor, keep you on the ground. It's that buoyant. And so that also has been fed into my internal simulation apparatus. But at the same time, I'm, I'm obviously very aware that imagination only takes you so far. And even the guys who go up to the space station that I've talked to, having heard about it again and again and again, and seen videos and pictures and from their previous colleagues who've been up there, you still can't really anticipate it all. And I'm sure the moon is even more so because of the landscape and the beauty of the landscape. And one of the quotes, one of my favorite quotes from Voices, in the, from, from, uh, Voices from the Moon is from David Scott, where he talks about the thing that you could never anticipate was the beauty of the landscape and in particular his landing site next to the Apennine Mountains. So uh, yeah, it's, it's always gonna be a mixture of both, I think. Out of all of the astronauts that you spoke with, uh, of course, we're talking about a military test pilots almost exclusively here. Uh, did you find, is, are, were there one or two astronauts who might stand out in your mind as being the most uh, introspective, the most intellectual, and the most philosophical in thinking back and uh, regaling you with their stories of, of their experience? Yeah, the one who comes to mind will surprise you, and that's Ken Mattingly. Okay. And um, even the other astronauts that I talked to before, some of the other astronauts that I talked to before I interviewed Ken, actually, I call him TK these days. That's how he likes to be known. Uh, you know, TK was very quiet, very kind of, you know, self-contained. The other guys had no idea of what was in there. But when I got to TK's condo uh, in um, Crystal City, Virginia, and sat down with him for what turned out to be a almost six hours, much of it after midnight. <laughs> uh, it was like he was reliving the mission in front of me 
And um, he is not only introspective, but remarkably insightful, remarkably thoughtful, um, and funny, and great to talk to. And it was one of my all-time favorite interviews on the whole project. So I put him right up there at the top. Obviously, the command module pilots who orbited the moon but never walked on the moon had a very different experience, I would imagine, from the people who set foot on the moon. But uh, the more I read about it, the more I feel like that's not necessarily an experience that was uh, inferior to walking on the moon. And it, it seems as though there were obviously some who felt that you know, perhaps a twinge of jealousy or would have loved to have walked on the moon. But uh, it seems like Ken Mattingly specifically, as well as others, were uh, just as satisfied, if not more satisfied, with the idea of piloting this tiny little craft solo around an alien world. Would you agree? Yeah. In fact, that was exactly what I was thinking of uh, when you were asking the question. Was uh, Mattingly's comment to me that, you know, I, I can't be sure since I haven't ever walked on the moon, but I can't imagine how that would be as much fun as orbiting the moon alone in this little spaceship by yourself in dead quiet, looking out at this amazing landscape, which by the way, not only was amazing in, in the sunlight of space, but also in earthlight, um, which he said was like flying over uh, a snow field or a snow blanketed landscape on earth by the light of a full moon. And, um, but obviously very different because it's craters and mountains and, you know, rills and things like that. And earthlight is different from, from moonlight. Um, and it's and tremendously course, bright as well, isn't it? Or the earthlight. Yeah. Depending on the phase of the earth. Um, and, and when, when they were there, um, I guess it was about, well, no, it was, it was, a, it was a sort of a fat crescent um, at the time of John and Charlie's landing, but it was still bright enough to illuminate, you know, pretty good. The, the Earth is four times the apparent diameter of the moon. Uh, in other words, the Earth is seen from the moon is four times bigger than the moon seen from the Earth. So that's the corresponding increase in surface area um, and um, therefore that much brighter, even if you're not looking at a full Earth. So uh, in contrast to my previous question, was there an astronaut or two or three astronauts perhaps that stand out in your mind as being sort of uh, the least intellectually curious or the least introspective? Obviously, they all did their jobs and performed uh, incredibly well to doing these amazing tasks in outer space and have these distinguished careers, but some of them were more intellectually curious and more philosophical than others. Well, there were some who made a point of saying, you know, we're not, you know, we're not navel gazers or nobody used that phrase, but, you know, Frank Borman said, we're not humanists in this business, you know, and he sort of plays up the image of the of the gruff, you know, no nonsense cold warrior, which is true. I mean, he is the epitome of the cold warrior. But even Frank, 
uh, will indulge in in statements of introspection and philosophy sometimes, just not extended explorations. I mean, um, you kind of had to, you ca I, uh, my wife has remarked on this because she's, she's looked at the interviews with me in detail when we were doing voices. And she said, boy, you really had this way of just not giving up, you know, when somebody would not want to go where you were leading them, you'd kind of wait and wait for your chance and then circle back around. And that's true. Um, I was, I was very persistent. I also um, really worked hard at relating to them on their individual levels and individual uh, ways of, of relating. Um, and I think that helped me as an interviewer and also having kind of a mental Rolodex of um, facts and, and, and comments from all the other guys that I could kind of feed into the conversation to help them remember things and trigger them. And I, I would say, I mean, you know, the guy that was probably hardest to get information out of was John Young, but even John Young gave me some bits that were great that I didn't know. Um, but, and John is tremendous, was, was tremendously uh, thoughtful and, and philosophical, just express, you know, over the years in his statements about the state of mankind. And he used to quote, I think it's H.G. Wells, right? We're, we're in a race, the, the humanity is in a race between edu education and catastrophe. And I first heard that quote from John, and I, I think it describes the state of humanity, the state of the world, as well as anything I can think of. But John just had this kind of, you know, way about him, this whole, you know, kind of Will Rogers country boy thing that he did. But he he was in there, you know, even John. I mean, he was he was in there. I think he thought about things as deeply as anybody. He just didn't express it the same way. It, it seems like uh, every astronaut would have to have some sort of childlike sense of wonder about the whole experience and how amazing it was combined with uh, the very urgent need to have an adult's sense of mental focus on every single task that they were completing as they were completing it. Well, again, and this is something I write about it in the introduction to Voices from the Moon, um, I projected the sense of wonder onto them. And that's where I got myself into trouble sometimes. And, and that was really something I had to recalibrate on. Um, I kept hearing the phrase, you can't help but be a little awed. Uh, Ron Evans, I remember. You can't help but be a little awed when you look out, you see the earth shrink to the size of your thumb. But he said, you know, does that change you? No, I'm the same person I was before I went. I had a great time, you know, but no, it didn't change me. Whereas, you know, uh, Ed Mitchell is on the other end of the spectrum. He had um, what he would describe as an altered state of consciousness during the trip home from the moon. And he's unique in that regard in terms of the Apollo astronauts. Nobody else 
talks about the moon experience in that way. Jim Irwin talked about feeling the presence of God on the moon. So that's sort of in the same ballpark. They, they, I'd put them at one end of the spectrum and I'd put guys like Ron Evans at the other end of the spectrum. And then there's a whole bunch of guys in the middle but I don't think, by and large, most of them uh, don't dwell on the sense of wonder and don't want to say that it changed them. That's a negative in their worldview. Um, but a guy like Mike Collins will talk about how seeing the earth and having to hunt for the earth in five different windows, finally finding it in the fifth window in all that blackness does change your perspective and changes the way you look at problems that the rest of the humans are struggling with that you see with a different perspective. So it is a, there is a spectrum that's kind of cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what the new generation of astronauts experiences and thinks and feels about it when they get to go, whenever that is, um, hopefully, by the end of this decade, maybe a little longer than that, depending on how so, it all plays out. So um, Harrison Jack Schmidt, uh, as you of course know, has the distinction of being the first scientist to ever set foot on another world. And I guess for the time being, the only scientist to have set foot on another world uh, during the Apollo 17 mission with Commander Eugene Cernan. Do you think that there are any uh, lessons that come to mind? Because they spent an extensive amount of time on the surface of the moon, just as uh, future astronauts will spend on the moon and perhaps on Mars. Do you think there are any uh, unique lessons that they have to impart to future explorers, particularly the first human beings to land on Mars? Um, well, I think, I think all of the landing crews had things to contribute to that knowledge base that was a steadily growing knowledge base as the program progressed. Jack and Gene were, by the time they arrived on the moon, they already had been exposed to all of those uh, observations and lessons from the previous crews and they were able to hit the ground running, so to speak, in a way that previous crews not maybe hadn't. Um, like if you watch in the first EVA on Apollo 17, if you watch um, Gene struggling with the drill and getting the, the drill out of the ground, the drill stem, and Jack comes over to help him and, you know, launches himself into space as he's pushing on the treadle to extract the drill. And it's all on the Rover's TV camera. It's a beautiful video clip. And you watch that and you realize these are guys who arrived on the moon with a level of confidence as to what those suits could handle. And so you see that right there. They also, when they came back, had a lot to say about the effects of the dust John Young also said, when people go back to the moon, the thing they better worry about is the dust. I think that's the one thing that, in, to my mind, is going to be the biggest commonality between 
operations on the moon and operations on Mars is the pervasive, very fine grained dust. Now the difference is uh, on Mars, the dust is even finer grained, I believe. And it also contains things that are not present in lunar dust. One example being perchlorate, which is a thyroid toxin. It competes with iodine, gets into the, into the body and competes with iodine and can affect the, the thyroid function. So, you know, we've, that's another reason why I don't think we're ready to go to Mars, no matter what Bob Zubrin would like to say, because we don't even know the detailed chemistry of that Martian dust. We have not ever had a sample of Martian dust in a laboratory to see what the biological effects are. So it's a little soon to be making grand plans about how humans are gonna be able to live on Mars for a year and a half, which is, I think, is the amount of time in the, in the uh, long stay version, the minimum energy return. Right. Right. So, you know, we got a lot to learn. Um, Apollo gave us, gave us our first, you know, our first um, experience with operating on an alien surface in an alien environment, but they were only there for very short times. I mean, and you probably know this, that between Apollo 16 in April of 72 and Apollo 17 in December, the largest, I think it is still the largest solar flare ever recorded happened in August of 72. And, you know, would have, as I understand it, would have made very sick and potentially lethal, lethal dose of radiation to any astronauts who were on the surface of the moon if that had happened. Yeah, and it so was they my, were they were also they were lucky. <laughs> it was my understanding that obviously you could delay a launch if there was a solar event, or you could return to Earth if you were in low Earth orbit. But if you were already on the Moon or already in lunar orbit, and there was a catastrophic sort of solar event, uh, there would really be not very little you could do to mitigate it. I mean, you could lift off. You could dock with the command module, you get rid of the lamb, and then you could point the engine bell of the service module right. towards the sun to put the most mass between the astronauts and the sun. And I think that's all you could do. You know, we know now that things that have hydrogen in them are good absorbers of solar flare radiation, solar flare particles. Um, and so you've got I mean, it's, I mean, the chemistry is escaping me, but I think there's an awful lot of hydrogen in the service module propellants uh, that would help you in that regard. Um, but, you know, these days you'd, you'd be dealing with a much bigger vehicle uh, taking humans to Mars and, and they'll design that in. They'll have a radiation shelter with maybe the water supply um, around this little room that you could go into and wait for the storm to pass. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so I could obviously talk to you for hours about these different subjects, but I really just had uh, one last question that uh, was a sort of a top priority for me going into this interview is you talked about uh, starting a lot of your work with the Apollo astronauts in the 1980s. 
and uh, mentioned George H.W. Bush and his space exploration initiative, which never really came to pass in the way in which he proposed it. Have you had a lot of personal uh, feelings and opinions about the course of America's uh, policy, a space policy in terms of human space exploration, uh, because it's it's changed and evolved over the years. Even in recent memory, uh, President, former President Barack Obama, famously said that we shouldn't go back to the moon because, in his words, we've already been there, and that we should focus on the goal of sending human beings to Mars. Uh, obviously, in a perfect world, you'd, we'd love to do all the above. But have you had any? particular feelings over the years and now about whether returning to the moon should be a priority, going to Mars and sending human beings to Mars for the first time should be the top priority to which NASA devotes all of its or most of its resources? Well, I think NASA is actually on a pretty good track right now uh, because uh, they have made they've divided things into commercial crew to handle operations in earth orbit, getting people to and from this, the ISS and so forth. I think that's appropriate. I think that's a good, a good fit. And then NASA can concentrate on exploration where you need cutting edge technologies um, and you needed to have the support of a government funded program because so far at least there's no economic driver for human exploration. So I think that's good. I mean, it, now the interesting wild card here is whether or not the commercial companies will also be successful in developing exploration vehicles. And I'm, I'm not just talking about the Artemis Lander, which is a commercial um, offering that is being competed at the moment, or, or I, I guess it was competed and they chose a couple of different companies, including SpaceX, but also Elon Musk's uh, Starship and the associated launcher, the Blue Origin, um, new, new Glenn and New Armstrong vehicles that they have on the drawing boards. Are we going to see um, non-government programs can become actors on the human space exploration stage. Um, I'm happy about all this. I think this is a good thing to have, this competition, this disruption, this mix of you know, people who've gotten their hands dirty at NASA for many decades doing things in the past, although they haven't built a new launch vehicle in a very long time, which is part of the reason we're seeing all the delays with SLS. Um, I think that plus, you know, various political and economic ups and downs, but it's also a very expensive program. Um, so I'm actually feeling better about things now than I was for most of the last a couple few decades. Um, I was frustrated when President Obama said that about having been there and done that. I suspect he got that from Buzz, who has felt that way for a long time. And I, feel I like, agree with that. I, 
I feel like even among Neil Armstrong yeah. and Buzz Aldrin, uh, two men who have, have so much in common in, in terms of the adventure that they went on, uh, they did not see eye to eye on that. And even among the Apollo astronauts, there were a lot of different ideas about what direction we should go in uh, next. Well, be careful saying they had so much in common. They were on the same flight together. That doesn't mean that they had a lot in common as people. That's They're fair. very different people. Very, very different people. And Buzz is the only one of the Apollo guys who really kind of put his money where his mouth is in terms of investing time and effort and energy into the future of space of space exploration, human space exploration. Um, John Young was another one who remained passionately interested in that and did, did a lot of advocacy, but Buzz really, you know, in addition to all the other things like dancing with the stars, right? Um, Buzz has been a consistent voice for advancing human exploration of space. And he's, he has been focused on Mars and I don't blame him but I, I agree with John Young, who has said, you know, I, I said to him during our interview, one of our interviews, a lot of people now think the moon is boring. And he said, oh, it's anything but boring. We haven't, we've only begun to understand it, or I can't remember, I think he said, we haven't even begun to understand it. The moon is... I really feel the moon is the Rosetta Stone of the solar system because it is the best place in the solar system to decipher the earliest chapters of solar system history through the record of cosmic impacts that's preserved on the moon's surface and the record of solar output that's preserved in the lunar soil and things like that, but particularly the impact record, which goes back much further. And from that, you can begin to decode everything else that happened. And, you know, the moon is um, the way in which we came to understand the, so much about the origin and evolution of the solar system. And it's a spectacular place from everything the astronauts say. It is a spectacularly beautiful place. It's the only place in the solar system where you can stand on the surface of another world and see the earth as a planet rather than as a bright star-like point of light, which is what it's gonna be when you go to Mars. You know, Mars is so far away that the earth is like a bright star in the, in the, in the evening or the morning sky. And it's so far away that you can't have real-time conversations with anybody uh, except the people who are on Mars with you. And all of these things make the moon pretty special. And it's also the outward bound school as, uh, as uh, Richard and Wendy Peeney, the science fiction writers uh, said to me once, it's like the outward bound school uh, for us because we, we're only three days away from home and we can learn how to live off world. Um, so, you know, I, I've never agreed with that mindset that the moon has been there, done that. And I'm really glad we're planning to go back. Well, I think that's a fantastic note to uh, conclude our discussion on. And we really appreciate you being part of the program and sharing your wealth of knowledge on these, uh, this amazing adventure. You bet. Thank you very much for having me. It's really been fun.